Amen. It is so good to worship with you guys. It is so good to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, to just, just have that moment where we slow down and realize that through his death, death was arrested so that as a follower of Christ, your life begins and he gives eternal life. You know, we need that truth, don't we? Amen? You mean it, right? We know we need that truth. And there's times where we feel like we're losing it. In fact, the stories that we're going to look at in Luke's gospel today, there are two stories that, that seem like they really would be separate stories. One almost interrupts the other, and yet they're really closely intertwined in, in kind of an unusual way. One is the story of a little girl who needs to know what it means for death to be arrested because her life is about to leave her. One is the story of a woman who, although she is alive, her livelihood has been taken from her. And both of them need to find life. And so we're in Luke chapter 8, starting with verse 40 today. And so you remember this is after Jesus has calmed the storm, after they went across the lake and Jesus healed the demon-possessed man. And it says in verse 40, So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment. And immediately, her flow of blood stopped. Immediately, she was healed. Now, if you've read this story before, maybe you know what happens. I know when I've read this story before, it's like we're about to hear this something really great about Jairus and his daughter, right? But but then this other story kind of comes in from the side. It's amazing as as you actually rest in this story for a minute, you see these two stories are actually connected in a lot of ways. And there are hints throughout the passage. One of them that I completely missed for however many times I've read this until actually studying it for today You just get these little notes, like Jairus has a daughter who is 12 years old. The woman has been suffering with whatever this hemorrhage is for 12 years. Interesting. You know, Jairus, it says he was a ruler of the synagogue. That indicates that he actually was probably the person who, when you would come into the synagogue to teach, he was the one responsible for kind of keeping everything in order and for bringing out the scroll that would be taught that day. Well, Jesus has taught in this synagogue. And so it's very likely that he already knows Jesus, that he has had moments where he has seen Jesus work, where he has looked Jesus eye to eye and even said, Rabbi, here is the teaching for the day. And that he would know who Jesus was. And now he comes to Jesus because in this moment, we don't know what else they've tried, but his daughter is about to die. And for his only daughter, he thinks Jesus might be the only one who can heal her. In the midst of that, this woman shows up. 
Now, her case is interesting because the fact that she had a flow of blood for 12 years, we don't know exactly what that means. It's, it's some kind of hemorrhage, something internal that's happening to her. But according to Mosaic law, she and all of the people around her would know this blood made her unclean. What that meant was that for the last 12 years, anybody she touched would like catch her uncleanness. What was wrong with her would be given to anybody else who touched her, who came into contact with her. And so she has lived for 12 years without a hug, without a handshake, without even like a fist bump, bro. Nothing. Can you imagine what that would feel like? She's alive, but her livelihood is gone. In fact, there's some indication here that she was probably a woman of means because really only people at the time who had some level of wealth could even afford physicians. And it says that she had spent all of her livelihood on physicians. Now remember, this is Dr. Luke who's writing this. And even he has to kind of own up to the fact that none of us could help her. All of the practices, all of the things, all of the medicine that we knew, none of us could help her. Uh, It's kind of funny if you read Mark's version of this account. He's a little less kind to the physicians. He says she suffered many things from the physicians and none of them could heal her. And so she too is wondering if Jesus might be the only one who can help her. And so she comes in this moment as the crowds are pressing around him, as Jesus, it indicates, is actually on the way to Jairus' house and she interrupts this procession, maybe not intentionally, but comes from behind him to just touch the border of his garment. You know, a sense of faith here that if I could just get close to him, if I could just touch his clothes, it might heal me. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. And one of the things that I think is happening here, one of the things that I think Jesus is doing is that for both of these people, life has been interrupted. For the little girl, life is about to be interrupted permanently. But even for this woman, for 12 years, her life has been interrupted. Whatever she was before that, whatever may come next, in this moment, life has stopped. But Jesus helps us find life in the midst of life's interruptions. Now, I don't know if you can identify with Jairus or if you can identify with this woman. I don't know what it may be in your life that has felt like that kind of interruption. I know that there are families in our community, friends that I have, people that I know who have been exactly where Jairus is and you know that pain and you know how everything stops with the sickness of a child, with the death of a child. I know that there are families in our community even right now and that many of us have gone through these times where where a disease just changes everything. All of a sudden life looks different and you don't know if it'll ever be the same. But maybe it's not something medical. Because for this woman, this was something that was keeping her away from other people. And sometimes there is something broken in us that we think, I can't be around other people. I can't talk to other people about this. This is too much. This is too unclean. This is too messy. This is too broken. And it interrupts our lives. But Jesus wants to help us find life in the midst of life's interruptions. Now, sometimes the interruptions are small. But did you know that research actually shows that it takes you 20 minutes to get back to the level of focus that you had before an interruption. I absolutely have learned this. We have four small children in our house. (laughs) 
And sometimes when I'm trying to work from home and it's like, you're really in the zone, right? Like this thing, it's starting to make sense. You're about to pinpoint it. You can just sense that you're almost there. Daddy, daddy. And you pretend you can't hear it, (laughs) right? You put headphones on, but they're persistent. Daddy, 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 daddy. And you love them. So you let them interrupt you and you, you figure out whatever it is. And then it's like, I lost it. <laughs> right? But these, those are the little interruptions, right? But there are major interruptions to life. And, and for them here, it was medical. I mean, have you ever been to urgent care? Yeah. Again, we have four little kids. We have, we have been to urgent care. <laughs> That's what this moment is like, right? Jairus comes to urgent care. Something is seriously wrong with his daughter and somebody interrupts. Think about that. When you go to urgent care, I remember one time I was there, split my eyebrow playing basketball. I'm gushing blood. I come in. There's already like 10 other people here. There's always a line, right? But I'm gushing blood. I should go first. No, sir, you're going to wait your turn. (laughs) Somebody else comes in and says, chest pain. Front of the line right away. And, and, and in my own little world, I'm thinking, why is their serious issue more serious than my serious issue? Right? We, we want to go first. Uh, we, we don't want these interruptions. I can't imagine what it must feel like for Jairus to have Jesus walking with him and then stop for this woman. But, but look at what happens. It says something really interesting. The multitude welcomed Jesus, but Jairus interrupts the multitude. And it implies that Jesus began to go with Jairus. As he went, the multitudes thronged him. That means pressed against him. And now the woman interrupts the multitude. In verse 45, Jesus said, Who touched me? So in the midst of this huge crowd, when the woman comes up and touches just the edge of his garment, Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, uh, Master, the multitudes throng and press you. (laughs) And you're asking, who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touched me. For I perceived power going out from me. See what happens here. Jesus interrupts the multitude for the individual. You see this? They're talking about the multitude. Jesus, there are people all around you, and when you're being thronged and pressed, everybody's touching you, everybody's bumping you, everybody's pushing to be closer or fighting to get through. But Jesus is talking about one person. Somebody. There's a somebody here, and I want to know who they are. Jesus interrupts the crowd for the individual. I I love this because he does this time and time again throughout his ministry. That Jesus was not just here to speak to big groups, have them clap, and then go and bask in the glory. Right? He absolutely talked to big groups because we need his teaching, but Jesus was here to save individuals. To forgive men and women, boys, girls, children who needed a savior. And so even as the multitude is moving, Jesus stops the multitude and asks, who touched me? You know, this is one of the things that as we hear the heart of Jesus, as we see the way that he does ministry, you know, we've really tried to build that into who we are as a community here at Horizon. In fact, when my family and I were 
thinking about making this move out here and joining the team, that's one of the things that really captured my heart. Because it's one thing, right? If we all gather together on a Sunday morning, we do this big group thing, and I say things like, Jesus wants to help you find life. Jesus brings healing. Jesus loves you. Thank you for your time. And I'll only see you next week, and please don't bring me your problems in the meantime. But we know that's not how life works. Every one of us in this room represents a real life with real trials, with real issues, with real troubles. And we need more than just, thanks for coming for an hour every week. Don't we? And one of the things that I loved here is that, that, that people told me, and that's nice, but then I experienced it. What it means to be highly personal, high touch, to care about every single person as one person, as a somebody, like Jesus is doing here. As he says that he felt that power go out from him. I love that the power did not make him weaker. The power made her stronger. Right? The power demonstrated that there is somebody here who can do what only God can do. Because she was unclean, and now she is clean. This interruption has given her new life. But in verse 47, we see it, it appears that even the woman felt like she was probably an interruption. We get the sense that she was content to just kind of squeeze through, touch him, and back away. But then Jesus says, who touched me? In verse 47, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. Here's another connection between our two stories. How did Jairus come to Jesus? He fell down before him. Begged him to come with him. The woman now, I mean, she, she probably had to crouch to touch him in the first place, but if not before, here she is. She falls down before Jesus. This is a very common response when human beings are faced with the glory of God. In fact, if you can remember back to chapter 5, this is how Peter responded. When he caught no fish and Jesus said, go try again, and they caught so many fish their boats were sinking, he saw something he had never seen before. He fell down before Jesus, and Jesus lifted him up and said, do not be afraid. This is the same thing that Daniel does when he's faced with the glory of God, that Isaiah did when he was faced with the glory of God, that John does in the book of Revelation when he's faced with the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've had that experience. You feel that, maybe even physically, certainly in your spirit, when you see the glory, the goodness, the righteousness, the purity of God, and you fall before him trembling. I wonder what this woman thought about him. Why did she feel that that she needed to almost slink away from this moment? You see, sometimes I think that we think about God this way that, and and I'll just own this for myself, because I think it's out there kind of like in pop culture, but it's also in us. And I know that there are times where I feel like I'm almost, I'm almost bothering God. Like, this probably isn't a big enough deal. I mean, his daughter died, so I shouldn't, I'll just try to touch him and I'll try to get out of here. 
Or we think, I've prayed about this before. I shouldn't have to pray about this again. I mean, I know, God, that we talked about it, but I'm still struggling. And, well, he's probably just annoyed at me now, right? We think whatever my issue is, you know, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's relational, I'm probably just bothering God. And, and what is he going to say? Is he going to shake his head at me? Is he going to be disappointed in me? Is he going to laugh at me? Is he going to push me away? I wonder if that's how she felt when she came trembling and fell down before him. We'll see in a moment how Jesus responds to her. But I also think there's something else going on here because as we've talked in this series about being a red letter life, this idea that our lives become letters from God that other people can read to engage with him, to see who he is through what he's done in us. The woman was immediately healed and immediately she became a red letter life. Right? She stands before all these people. She's speaking to Jesus, but they're listening in and she tells them, this is what was broken in me, but it's not anymore because of Jesus. I wonder, do you have a story like that? What stories could you tell? That this was something that was messed up inside of me, but it's healed now because of Jesus. I know that sometimes these are hard to share. It's hard for me too. You've probably heard me speak from time to time up here about the way that I've had to deal with anger in my own life. And I can pinpoint, seriously, like on a calendar, the day that I owned that my anger was sinful, not just like my personality. You know, I can pinpoint that moment when I turned that over to him and said, I want you to heal this in me. You know, and there's a process. There's a process of growth there. I wish I could snap my finger and say, and immediately I never got angry again. <laughs> I've had perfect self-control ever since. Not true, but I'm growing. And there's an absolute difference because I gave it to him. I know that. And I can remember um, a couple of years ago, I was in, uh, had been playing basketball and two guys decide to take it outside. <laughs> and so there's two guys, button heads, absolute anger. You know, it's, it's a respect thing. It's a pride thing. And fists are up like we're going to fight. Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed. But one of them I'd gotten to know pretty well. And it was like, I can see this thing in him that I have seen in me. And so I just invited him out to lunch. And it's not one of those things where, you know, you get people in front of you and you say, you're a very angry person. You shouldn't act like that. I don't act like that. I wouldn't do that anymore. Right? It's not, it's not that. But for me, it was just, hey, look, man, there's things that happened. Like in that moment, I could see your buildup and I felt that because that's happened to me. And so take this or leave this. This is not a judgment thing. I'm not trying to push this on you. But you've probably never seen me that angry. And there's a reason why. You know, here's what it looks like when I actually just pray about this thing. Here are the verses I've memorized that I can repeat to myself when I feel that temperature rising. I just want you to know that it's, it's Jesus and, and giving that thing to him that has made that difference for me. So he did not, to be honest with you, he didn't take that with him that day. I mean, he was nice and he listened and we talked. But if you remember a couple months ago, I shared a story about uh, my friend Ricardo getting baptized. That was Ricardo. Probably, probably about a year and a half later, 
He had given his life to Christ. He had given his anger to Christ. And he's been baptized and he's growing in Jesus. And that can be hard. That can feel embarrassing. But there's times where we have that opportunity like this woman did to let our lives speak of the power of God that makes us tremble but also lifts us up. And so as you think about that, maybe ask yourself this question. Do I see the needs of others as interruptions or opportunities? If I'm honest with myself, a lot of the times it feels like interruptions. And I want to help others. I care about their needs. And I'll pray about that thing. I'm like, yes, Lord, you know, show me how I can help others. Show me where I can can serve somebody else. And then like you finish praying, you walk out the door and like somebody crashes into you with their need. And it's like, oh, I didn't mean like right now. Like today, I actually have a lot of things I need to get done, but um, like Thursday, Lord, can I check back in? A lot of times it feels like interruptions. This is what I love about the heart of Jesus. He never saw them as interruptions. He sees our needs as opportunities. That's something that we can learn from the life giver. That's his kindness. That's how we can find life in the kindness of Jesus. In fact, in verse 48, now you've got this picture. The woman is trembling. She's fallen to her knees. She just told everybody the uncleanness she had, but that now she's clean. I think that was for her too. Because everybody needed to know, you can hug this woman now. You can celebrate with this woman. Something has changed for her. She's been given her life back. And look at the words that Jesus speaks to her in this moment. She trembles thinking almost that he might not even want her here. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I guarantee you, these are the kindest words she had ever heard in her life. And I love this. He doesn't call her woman. He doesn't say, hey, you. He doesn't scowl and say, you touched me? Don't you realize I'm on the way to Jairus' house? No, he says, calls her daughter. Daughter. We see another connection between our stories. You realize in this moment how much Jesus loves each one. That the same pain, the same joy, the same hope, the same love that Jairus had for his daughter, Jesus has for this woman. And he has for you. That he would look you in the eyes and call you son, daughter. That you are his. That he loves you this way. Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. You see, now this was an act of faith on her part. And I think this is the other reason that Jesus wanted to call her forward. Because he wasn't content letting her leave thinking that this was some magical thing or some superstition or that, that some strange mystical thing had occurred. He wanted her to know it was his kindness toward her. But why touch his garment? As I was studying this, somebody pointed this out to me. There's actually a verse in Malachi 4, chapter 2, that says, The sun will rise with healing in his wings. And everybody would know this verse because they knew that this was a verse about the Messiah. 
So when the Christ, when the chosen one, when the Savior came, he would come with healing in his wings. The sun would rise with healing in his wings. Okay, what does that have to do with touching his garment? Well, the wings probably referred to the prayer shawl that they would wear. Because the Hebrew word that is used in Malachi for wings can also mean the outer edge of a garment or a cloak. So that when they would take the corners of that prayer shawl and spread it out, it looks like wings. Now, a lot of people would wear a prayer shawl. But only one person would have healing in his wings. By coming to touch this garment, she was making a claim that she believed this Jesus to be the one, the Messiah, to touch the edge of his garment and to be healed. It's the same kind of thing that in Luke chapter 1, Zacharias prophesied about Jesus. This kindness. Remember, as he held the baby John, he prophesied that the Messiah would come through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring, the rising sun, would visit us. God in the flesh is here and he calls her daughter. You know, when I read this, when I hear these words, I don't know about you, but I start feeling like, man, I wish he said that to me. (laughs) Man, that sounds good and peaceful and restful. You know, I I was listening to a, a speaker talk about the theology of Martin Luther recently because that's what I do with my free time sometimes. <laughs> my dad sent me that one. And he had this amazing thought because Martin Luther believed that the gospel was a word of kindness. Absolutely a word of power, but also a word of kindness to you, to me, that this word is for us. And one of the things that he said in that lecture that will probably stick with me for the rest of my life, he said, if you are ever anxious, if God loves you, go and hear somebody say, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you, exactly like we did this morning when we gather to celebrate communion together. That's why this is one of the greatest moments that as the body of Christ we get to share when we celebrate the Lord's table. We remember his death, his sacrifice so that we can be forgiven for whatever that thing is that we think keeps us from other people, that makes us hesitate to even come to God, that makes us afraid that if we show it to him, he'll push us away. Whatever that worst thing is that you've ever done that you can think of right now, yes, even that thing, he has healing in his wings. For even that. His body was given. His blood was shed for you, for me, to find life through his kindness. In fact, that's what Ephesians 2 tells us. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
And a few verses later, it says about Jesus himself, he is our peace. This is God's heart to you through Jesus Christ. This is why he was here, to be the kindness of God. He is living it out, and this kind word is for you, that you might find life in the kindness of Jesus, just as this woman did. That you would hear him say, Daughter, son, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You know, as uh, Pastor Doug and I were talking through this passage, he pointed out something I think is really helpful. That her faith was not perfect. It, It may not have been the strongest faith, but she had faith. And Jesus responds. Now, doesn't that put a nice bow on it? Isn't that a great story? The woman whose livelihood had been stolen from her, found life in the sun. Thank you for coming. We'll see you all. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute! Jairus! What's going on with Jairus? His his daughter was dying and we're all just standing here. Look at what happens in the very next verse. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, while Jesus is speaking this kind word to this woman, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. Now who gets that job? No longer dying. While Jesus is still speaking, what is Jairus thinking? And the man runs up to tell him, she's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Listen, we just saw this with the woman. We're seeing it again here. Your trouble is no trouble to Jesus. Your interruption does not bother him, and it does not slow him down if God is at work. Look at what he says. He doesn't even give Jairus a chance to respond. When the man comes and gives this report, when Jesus heard it, he didn't answer the messenger. He answered Jairus. He answered him, saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. I love that he doesn't even let Jairus speak. Right, there's not even a moment, because if I'm Jairus, every thought of pain, of loss, of anxiety, of fear, of how could this happen, how could you let this do this, now it's too late, is about to spring forth from my mind and poison the world around me, and Jesus doesn't let him speak. He says, do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. Let that sink in for a minute. Where do you need to hear the Son of God say to you, do not be afraid, only believe. Do not be afraid, only believe. What do you need to trust him for? What do you need to hold up to him and say, Jesus, I believe you for this person, for this situation, for this circumstance, for this relationship? But it's his daughter. If you've got kids, you can resonate with this. I remember when our our first child was born, which is our only daughter. So you can imagine, you know, how this one hits the heartstrings. And going through the pregnancy, you know, there's there's always these moments where you feel like, like it's your first one. Like, what do I even do with this? You know, we had a couple of these moments where we felt like is something going wrong in there? You know, and, and you pray and you lift it up to God and you realize you're completely out of control. And so all you can say is, Lord, we trust you for Belle. 
And then it's the goofiest thing. Once she's born and once she gets here safely, okay, thank you, Lord. We'll take it from here. Now, now I've got to really keep her safe, right? And I've got to raise her up. And I, I remember talking to a, another dad, one who had, was farther down the journey than me. And, and what he told me was, listen, you're going to have those cycles all the way through your life. And every time you think that, that you've trusted him for that child, you're going to have a, a, a new season, a new challenge. Something's going to happen. But here's what he told me. We absolutely have a responsibility as parents. We want to do the best that we can for them. We want to keep them safe. We want to train them well. But all we can do is our best. And then we have to trust God with them. As I thought about this, I thought about what Jairus is doing here. I wonder, maybe the best thing that we can do for our kids, the best thing that I can do for my daughter, is bring Jesus to her. That's one of the the passions behind the East Station. If if you don't have kids and you've never been to the other side of this hallway, there is like a world of wonder (laughs) down there where our kids go every weekend and they're learning about Jesus. They're learning who God is. They're learning what it means to love him, to obey him. But we also have a passion that it's not just an East Station, right? I don't drop my kids off, hope they get that Jesus thing, and then we go home. It's, I drop my kids off, I hope they learn something about him, and then we say... What did you learn? Well, what does that mean? Well, how do you do that? How do I do that? How do we do that together? That this is part of our journey as parents with our kids. You know, we keep learning to trust, to trust him for our daughter. Two weeks ago, we actually celebrated her baptism because she has given her life to Christ and she wanted to demonstrate that with that step of obedience. And, uh, and because I've mentioned baptism twice now, I, I got to tell you, 10 o'clock today, Right after this service, walk-ins welcome, uh, up in one of the skyboxes is, is a class called Exploring Baptism. If you're a follower of Christ, you are a son or daughter of the living God. If you have not taken that step of celebration, that step of obedience, I would invite you to come and check that out. You know, find out what that's about and, and what that could look like for you. And for all of you, I want you to know that's coming up June 23rd. We're celebrating baptisms again after the Saturday evening service. Just like the Lord's Supper, that is one of the greatest things that we share as the body of Christ that we get to celebrate together is the baptisms of people who have moved from death to life, who have found life in the kindness of Jesus. So mark your calendar. (laughs) But now Jairus is in the midst of this, right? All he knows at this moment is that his daughter is dead and that Jesus said, just believe. And there's some indication that he did because they're still walking. Verse 51 says, When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in. So now he's not only interrupting the multitude, he's leaving them outside. He permitted no one to come in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Remember again, this is Dr. Luke writing this book. And so it's important, I think, that he doesn't say they ridiculed him because they thought she was dead. They didn't ridicule him because it looked like she might be dead. They didn't ridicule him because she was dying. We've passed that point. They ridiculed him because they knew she was dead. In fact, the people here that it indicates that wept and mourned in the Jewish culture, they had professional mourners who would meet at the house of the person who was dead and go with the funeral procession down the street. And so it's no wonder they can quickly move from mourning this person who they don't really know to laughing at Jesus for thinking that there's still hope. But Jesus has a different perspective because he has power 
over death. And so it says in verse 54, He put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat, and her parents were astonished. Naturally. (laughs) But he commanded them to tell no one what had happened. Jesus demonstrates resurrection power. And just as he did for that woman when he called her daughter, he speaks a tender word, a word of kindness to this little girl. And one of the guys that I like to listen to when I'm studying a passage is Joe Foch out of Philadelphia. And on this phrase, you know, he unpacks how this phrase would have been used in that day because we may picture this like it's almost an incantation, right? Little girl, arise! And like, a, you know, poof and dust in the air. And, but really, the, the phrase that's used here would actually be very similar to what you might do when you're trying to wake your kids up for school, which sometimes it is like, little girl, arise! Like, get up, we're going to be late! Not in this moment. In this moment, it's, sweetheart, sweetheart, It's time to get up. Jesus speaks to her, little girl, arise. The compassion, the tenderness, the heart of God in the person of Jesus to this daughter. You know, even here, there's something unique about the way that Jesus approaches her. Where the woman immediately spoke to the entire crowd about what had just happened to her. This just shows again how Jesus takes a custom approach to every individual that he meets. Because here he put the crowd out. See, for the woman, the crowd needed to know. They needed to know that she was clean. That she could re-enter society. Just like the demoniac the week before. Jesus specifically told him, go tell your entire household. You imagine what what that moment was like as he walks back into town. Oh man, he broke his chains again. Wait, wait, guys, look, I have clothes on now. I'm talking normal again. I, I met Jesus. They need that story. This girl probably didn't need a crowd thronging her, pressing against her, pushing her parents out of the way. But I wonder in a quiet moment if Dr. Luke got to interview them. Some of the eyewitnesses that he mentioned in chapter 1. Did he ask Jairus, what were you thinking between only believe and little girl arise? Did he talk to the mother? Did he talk to the little girl? As Jesus gave her life again. And yet, this was physical life. This little girl, someday, would die again. But it's a sign. It's a symbol. It's a demonstration of the power of Jesus as the Messiah. Because he has resurrection power. And for you, no matter what you have faced in this life, no matter what you will face in this life, no matter how long you are here or when your time comes and you go, if the Lord tarries, all of us will experience physical death. But Jesus is the only child, the only one, who had the resurrection power to overcome his own death. 
the death that we celebrated, his resurrection is the life that brings us life. If you're sitting here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, you are a son, you are a daughter. We are the children of the living God who gives us his life. It begins now, but it lasts for eternity. If you're sitting here this morning and you haven't ever reached out to Jesus in faith, you haven't taken that moment to say, I realize that you are the only one who can heal me. I realize that I need forgiveness and you are the only one who can forgive me. And this morning, I just have an invitation for you. An invitation to find life in the resurrection power of Jesus. That maybe today is the day you find out that it's not too late. That Jesus wants to speak that kindness to you. To heal you. I'm going to close with a word of prayer. But as I do, I'm going to leave a moment of silence. If you just want to talk to God in that moment, ask him for that forgiveness, for whatever it is that has kept you separated from him, and give your life to him that he might give you life. You can do that today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. We thank you that you have demonstrated your kindness to us through him. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you speak this tender word. And Lord, I pray for every heart here that if we are your children, if we know you that way, if we call you Father, that you would strengthen us today, even strengthen our faith through our circumstances as you did in these stories here. And Lord, for those who might be deciding that for the first time, Lord, that your spirit would just strengthen them, reach out to them, and give them a sense of the life that you have given them, that we might be called sons and daughters, and that is what we are. Lord, we pray this, we give you thanks for this, we give you glory for this, in the name of Christ, amen. Thank you for being with us this week. We will see you back next week for more of Red Letters. Thanks for coming.